Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Brett Anderson. Brett, the longtime food critic and features columnist for the New, York, New Orleans Times-Picayune. He's a James Beard Award winner, one of the best and most acclaimed uh, food writers and feature writers, for that matter, in the country. And uh, we got into it, uh, talking about the city of New Orleans and uh, post-Katrina, how the city changed, post-BP oil spill, how the city changed, what the restaurant scene says about current class divide and uh, some of the institutional elements that make New Orleans uh, both a great place and a complicated place. And uh, this was a really good chat, and I hope you dig it. A little different than the usual fare, but uh, pretty in-depth and uh, pretty fun. My thanks to Brett Anderson for joining me on the show. Uh, also, this is Hall of Fame Announcement Week. In fact, it's Hall of Fame Announcement Day. It looks like uh, Chipper Jones... Jim Tomei and uh, our old pal Vladimir Guerrero are going to get into the Hall of Fame. We will see if Edgar Martinez or Trevor Hoffman or anybody else joins, but those three guys seem likely. And uh, you will see an article from me coming up pretty soon uh, relating to Tomei, let's put it that way. And uh, it'll be a fun little spin-off of that. Uh, Tomei, one of the greatest power hitters of all time, and played for some excellent Cleveland Indians teams uh, that I felt uh, demanded a little bit more attention. So be sure to check that out coming up. Uh, also... Uh, a lot of content that I'm doing lately is on digital video, so uh, be sure to, if you haven't already, download the CBS Sports app on your phone, or you could do it on your Roku, what have you, and then we've got lots of content uh, coming down the pike in the video sphere. That's a lot of what I'm doing lately, and uh, yeah, talking baseball and all that good stuff. All right, enjoy this episode of the podcast. It is with Brett Anderson of the New Orleans Times Picayune. Dishwasher. I think the dishwasher is okay. Also, we started recording, so don't worry about okay. it. Okay. We're, we're, we're here, Brett Anderson's <laughs> home, and we're casual about the dishwasher. Uh, it's great to meet you, Brett. How are you? Uh, the pleasure is mine. I'm doing okay. I, well, I I'm doing as well as I can be as a lifelong Vikings fan. The day after they got utterly destroyed by the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, that's right. But I, but I, you know, whatever. There's our, there's more important things in life. Also, I think we probably should turn off the dishwasher. No, if that's okay with yeah, you, yeah, that's not a problem at all. We'll keep talking. Um, as Brett uh, walks into justice, just I walk to his place, and uh, it's just such an interesting. It's seventeen years now for you in New Orleans, and your you know your life revolves around food and everything like that. But just the day to day rhythms, like I just walked around the city last night, just just for no. I'm going to go here and see what happens, and there's just. It's one of those where literally every corner, oh, there's a plaque. Oh, this happened in 1797. And, and it just, it feels so different than Hartford or Detroit or Des Moines or whatever. It, it feels like the old world in some ways. Like this house, I mean, I walked into this. It's, it's modern and it's well-pointed and stuff inside. But on the outside, it's like, you know, it could be from I don't know how long ago. That has to be an interesting experience. Yeah, I mean, I you know, particularly as someone who's not from here, yeah. I, I think that, um, and I'm, you know, there's a lot of, transplants in New Orleans more so than there have been in, in recent decades. Um, and, uh, you know, New Orleans is a city that I feel people who live here, they love it in a way that's a little more intense than I've experienced other people loving where they're from. You know, it's, it's, it just, it, it, it provokes a kind of ardor, but I do think the being someone who didn't grow up in in such a place that you just described, yeah. you know, where there's history that unfolds, th there's still a novelty to that, you yes. know? And, and like, I, you know, I, I, I'm reminded of that very often, how, um, just an add, it's an added bonus to, to living here. I mean, it's, it's, it's baked into, to why I like, you know, I want to stay. Um, and, you know, I have two little kids who are growing up as New Orleanians, 
the city isn't going to be as novel to them. Mm-hmm. You know? Because yeah. they didn't move from Minneapolis to here. Uh, I mean, I, I lived in Washington, D.C. for five years before I moved here, but which is, in, it, I, I often say, is like actually quite good training wheels for New Orleans. Yeah. If you're, uh, <coughs> if you're as thoroughly northern as me, um, because it's, you know, it's, it's hot and it, it, you know, it's, it, it's, it's racial makeup is very similar. Mm-hmm. Well, particularly in terms of its African American population. And, you know, when I was there, there was a, Miriam Berry was mayor. You, the, so it wasn't as jarring as, as you might, if, as if I moved here right from Minneapolis, but it still is about as culturally different from Minnesota as you can get without leaving the country. We lived in D.C. at the same time, by the way. I was there 97 to 99. Oh. I found it. I, I liked it quite a bit, actually. I worked at City Paper. I worked at the uh, Washington Business Journal. Oh, wow. Yes. Small world. It is a small world. world and a long, winding road. <laughs> yeah. um, growing up in Minnesota, was it a cooking kind of home? Was it just, oh, you know, seven nights a week around the table and did elaborate meals? I mean, when did, did food represent a huge part of your growing up and your identity or was it no I'm a kid I play football and soccer and whatever and yeah I also eat burgers it was kind of somewhere in between that you know like my um you know my household was not my my mother was the cook and my my father was definitely not and um and we you know I have very fond memories of the of the things that we ate growing up and family dinners and that kind of stuff as as we got older I'm the youngest of three Mm -hmm. um we were all incredibly active with sports and these kinds of things. And so by the time we got to your teenage years, it's like no one's home for dinner. Yeah. You know, everyone's yeah. at a hockey practice or a swimming meet or, or whatever it might be. And, um, and in those years, you know, food became a little bit more, you know, something you just had to fit in. Right. And, um, but I've always been an, like, a a ravenous eater, mm-hmm. even if if I wasn't always a discriminating one, uh, which I guess you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and when I for, I did first start getting into food seriously when I was in Minneapolis, my first job, um, I got there was a weekly newspaper in Minneapolis called the Twin Cities Reader, and um, I had returned back from Minneapolis. I, I went to to Drake University in Iowa yep. for two years. I failed out, basically, and came home. And um, through a very just random set of circumstances, got a job, you know, just basically making Xerox copies at this weekly newspaper. And uh, one of the, the things I did, <coughs> excuse me, early on was I sort of helped. The, I was kind of like the errand boy for the sales staff Mm -hmm. and a lot of restaurants would would advertise with the paper and some of the deals that they would get would be trade and so a lot of the sales staff would give me these like they were basically coupons to go to restaurants but they would be worth money you know be like here's a trade thing for 30 bucks to go to whatever and and it was then that i really started first exploring you know at that time it was like middle eastern restaurants um Greek restaurants, uh, some Vietnamese restaurants. It hadn't, you know, Minneapolis at that time was much less diverse than it is today. Yeah. But that was kind of an early awakening to just being interested particularly in, in these, in the sort of urban, uh, offerings, uh, that, you know, the, the city offered. And then I also got very interested in those years in, I became a fan of certain food writers before I, had a palette for what they were writing about. Um, was there one in particular in Twin Cities who stood out? I was like, oh yeah, this this guy or gal is like, yeah, they're the well, yeah. Well, I wasn't so I started right then. After I was doing the Xerox job, I got a job as a writing about music, which was was my life's ambition. I mean, I, I didn't, I never wanted to do anything besides that. Amazing. Like, what did you grow up on? What were your well, Minneapolis in those days, you well, know, I mean, I, I started growing. You know, when I was really young, I, yeah. I liked classic rock. Yeah, you know? I mean, I liked. I like Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, as I creeped along into my, you know, sort of mid-teenage years, there was a, 
Minneapolis had a great, great underground rock and roll scene. And um, the sort of titans of that were a band called The Replacements yeah. and Husker Du. Yeah, I still yeah, yeah, have yeah, a giant yeah. Zen Arcade poster in the hallway over here. Amazing. Um, the, uh, a band, you know, Soul Asylum, who became kind of a top 40 band, I but which was a ferocious uh, live band in their early days. Um, and then just, uh, so I just became captivated by that and all of the, the what in those days you'd call college rock, really, uh, that was the culture that, those bands sort of toured in, right? And, and so I was a punk rocker. I mean, I like, and, um, and that's, that was just, it, and because I wanted to know more about that music, that's what really got me to become a fan of journalism and alternative journalism, read, you know, reading Rolling Stone and spinning, but also the Village Voice, those kinds of things. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I came out of. And then hip hop I loved, you know, and, um, I got the writing job because, the editor of that paper had left, and they hired this guy, David Carr, who was, oh, was just out of, uh, <laughs> yeah. which I don't know if your listeners know who he is, but he, he went on to become a, a very prominent journalist. I, mm-hmm. But, you know, when I met him, you know, I knew him as a Coke dealer, and um, <laughs> and he had got, you know, and then as a, but someone who everyone seemed to respect as a writer, you know, and then he came out of treatment and got this job, and he hired me as a, um, as a, as a music writer. And he also hired a, a man named Rick Nelson, who, who to be a restaurant critic for the paper. Mm-hmm. And he had followed up another guy named Adam Platt, different than the Adam Platt who writes for New York Magazine. But both those guys were real smart restaurant people. They, huh. they, they wrote really good, smart reviews. And I really liked reading them. And, um, and that there sort of led me to that Molly O'Neill wrote a, a column for the, um, New York Times Magazine in those days that I really liked. And there was a, a writer named Bob Shakochis who wrote for GQ and, and, um, he's a, you know, pretty prominent novelist now, but the, those are kind of, I was reading those people before I ever wrote about food. And then it was David Carr's idea, you know, David, who also sort of w- was a really liked to eat as well. And I would eat with him in those days, um, in and around Minneapolis. And he's the one, he moved to Washington DC and I followed him. Hmm. And one of his ideas about what I would do when I got to DC was to write a food column. And, um, so that's sort of, you know, that's sort of the, 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 the basis of, of food writing. But when I, I mean, when I started writing for the Washington City paper, I'd literally never tried sushi. Wow. I mean, I, like it was. And we're not a trained writer. You're coming in cold on <laughs> oh, all yeah, You've got, oh, no, you've got no, the no. mentor of all mentors, which in retrospect, holy cow, but like, how does one, I always get asked, or I, I even solicit young people just like, yeah, send me a note. Like, what, what can I do for you? And they're always like, well, I've just graduated from Syracuse and I want to do this. Mm-hmm often sports writing, but writing in general. And I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was like 13 because I, I was, you know, six feet tall in my bar mitzvah. I'm like, I'm going to play in the NBA. And at 13 and two months, I'm like, yeah, you need to be able to shoot the lights out or something. If you're like, I grew to be six, four, that's not going to get it done. I couldn't jump, whatever. Okay, fine. So what's my other alternative? I'm going to be a sports writer. And that happened. And I went to journalism school and I was very, very, very traditional. I had my first full-time journalism job when I was like 20. I always knew I wanted to do that, but that's so atypical now, I feel like the kids who say, oh, yeah, I went to Syracuse, I'm like, wow, you seem like a unicorn. Whereas back then, it feels like your path was more atypical. Like, you didn't come in and out of that way at all. You just said, oh, okay, this, 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 and it just led you to writing. So how do you improve as a writer if you're starting from zero? Is it just literally I'm going to keep clocking reps until I get better? Did you, you know, glom on to people like Carr to get a couple of what they were doing? How do you go about doing that. Now you're so far in, obviously, but yeah. at the beginning, that would be I tough, mean, I, I in the beginning, it was, I, I mean, I was super raw. It was yeah. not like one of those things where, <laughs> where they're like, oh, this guy's a comer. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it yeah. was not that. I mean, I failed out of college, and, yeah. but I was obsessive about music and I really always was a huge, huge and ravenous fan of, of <laughs> journalism writing. Mm. And, and I lucked into a situation where David decided to mentor me. Yeah. You know, and I, and I didn't, you know, as it was happening, I didn't, uh, I didn't know that was unique. You know what I mean? I, I, I thought, I just thought everyone was like him, you know, and, and I had very patient, there was an editor named Keith Getzman who was, I owe a lot to, who was like kind of handled my copy and was really my immediate editor when I was in Minneapolis. And I, I, you know, I, I got really lucky mm. and that those guys, you know, were patient with me and that they, you know, indulged me and that, and you know, and that David invited me to DC to do something that I didn't know how to do. And he hired me in the first place in Minneapolis to do something I didn't know how to do. And, um, I, I do think that there is, 
that there are a lot of opportunities for young writers these days to, frankly, <laughs> you know, start doing what they don't know how to do. Oh. What I think, you know, because of the ease in publishing, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and the, and the need for, for frankly, very cheap content. You know, I mean, that, yeah, that yeah, does yeah. mean that there are opportunities for people who are willing to work, you know, to just work cheap to get the experience. Yeah. What I think there are fewer opportunities than there used to be are, are ones that include, you know, really excellent mentorship. Yeah. You well, know, because yeah. editors are going away and editors are yeah, like that. The whole business, the business model that we grew up in doesn't exist anymore. No. And so that, you know, the, those positions, those jobs of editors and writers and stuff are completely being either tossed out or reimagined or whatever. And, and, and the news cycle is sped up. So there's not as much time for the like, let's go sit and talk for an hour. No. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and that's where I feel like I would be, um, I don't think I would have stayed, been able to make it through these early periods that, you know, young writers are now. Cause I kind of think you have to be a little bit, a little bit more polished to advance at a young age without the mentorship. You know, I mean, like you, I, and, and I certainly wasn't. You, know? well, you don't have a frontal lobe when you're 20. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's yeah. just that kind of reflective writing is difficult. And just to underscore your point, by the way, uh, I did go to journalism school, but it was still, you know, competitive and difficult. I didn't know if anything would happen. I remember the first set of summer internship applications that I sent out. It was all hand, you know, sent in letters, got letters back, and I had a stack, a hundred and something letters, all rejections. Not one of them accepted me. <laughs> and my favorite one by far was the New Orleans Times. Uh, oh, really? Yes. Because yeah. oh, I've never been to New Orleans. I'm like, yeah, yeah, play. I've heard. The two reasons I liked it. Number one, I didn't know what the one Picayune meant. Yeah, it's a good one. name. This is a great yeah. name. It's right the Times of the Star or whatever. And number two, it, I, I wish I remember all the wording. I, the letter's been lost to Sands of Time, but it was the most passive aggressive rejection letter of all yeah. time. I was like, well, you're good, bud. You're just say F off and I'd feel better. But it was like, <laughs> it was kind of raising my hopes and then crashing them down, which was very frustrating to me. Um, so you moved to New Orleans. Well, you had the opportunity to move to New Orleans and, 2001, roughly there. I moved here in December of 2000. December so, 10th, 2000 was my first day at the time of Picayune. And the thought process of that, I mean, it's DC's a great city. You could certainly make a career of it. You're going somewhere. What uh, tilted you in that direction and kind of what was your reaction when you got here to this place that was, that's very different. Very different. Yeah, no, it is very different. Well, I, you know, at the time when I was in D- DC, I was totally focused on Moving to New York. I, I, of course. I you know, I like, yeah. I just like, you know, this is in the nineties. New York was just totally intoxicating to me. I would go there all the time. You know, I had a lot of friends that live there. Getting there to D- from DC is super easy. I, you know, I just, and, and I just liked the, I kind of wanted to work for a magazine. That's what I guess what I thought what I wanted to do. And, um, and I was sort of trying to make that happen and, uh, was not focused on r- really trying to jump to a daily. The, I had interviewed around then for the restaurant critic job at the Washington Post that had been opened. And so I had been interviewing, doing that. I didn't get that job. Tom Sietzma is the editor there, or the food critic. He's still, the guy they hired is still there. And mm-hmm. he was a great friend of mine and, and who actually taught me a lot. And mm. he was absolutely the right hire in that instance. Um, the, but I was, I was more focused on moving to New York City. And I, I one day got a phone call from, um, Karen Taylor Gist was a, my editor at the time, she called, left me a message at the city paper asking if I would apply for this job. And, and so I did. I had been to New Orleans once before for Jazz Fest. Um, Great. and they, you know, the picking was really, I, I, I wasn't utterly set on taking the job if I was offered it by any means, but, you know, I figured I'll fly down there. You were single at the time, right? Well, I had a girlfriend and they flew my girlfriend down with me. Oh, okay. They, you know, we, it was like, I, I was here for three or four days and, you know, I had dinner or lunch with basically every editor of the paper. It felt like mm-hmm. they, I wrote two sample reviews, <coughs> you know, super thorough. Um, and, uh, went out twice to dinner with the, the editor, Jim Amos, um, whole process that doesn't happen anymore. I yeah. Know, I the, uh, and, and they offered me the job and I almost didn't take it. Like I almost was like, you know, this isn't my plans, you mm. know? And, and I didn't know anyone here and it just wasn't like, it just wasn't where I was planning to go. Mm. And then, but, but you know, the salary was, 
twice of what I think I made in DC. Cost I mean, like, you know, when you go too, to, like you, you know, well. weekly to daily. And, um, and I just figured if I, if I went down there and didn't like it, that'd be my fault. I mean, you know, like yeah. that, that, and so, you know, the fact that I even hesitated is embarrassing, but, but I took the job and moved down here and, and, um, you know, in those days I was 30 years old. I'm 47 now. I figured I'd do it for a few years and then get some other cool job at a bigger paper. I yeah. mean, that's how things worked then, right? Yeah. I mean, and, uh, I, I was dating someone who was in medical school somewhere else. And so that was, I, I always thought maybe I'd have to leave because of that. Mm. It just never happened. I mean, I, and, and, you know, and then Katrina happened and I, um, I, you know, I think a lot of people who went through that experience who are particularly who are still here yeah. will say that that sort of tightened their bond with the city. That was certainly true for me. Or the other way. People moved to Houston and never came back. Yeah, too. sure, sure. Yeah. But you can't it, be indifferent it, to yeah, it. Yeah, you can't be indifferent to it. Yeah. And, and, and that sort of tightened the bond. And, and there was a period after that that I had a job offer from the Washington Post that I turned down mm-hmm. with some agonizing. I mean, it, was it the food critic job for the Washington Post? No, it was like a features writer job. Okay. But, but, but that was what I kind of liked the most anyway. Okay. But it would have food and stuff and style section and whatever mm-hmm. um that was an incredibly hard decision but that was in the middle of 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 the katrina stuff and it just didn't feel right to, i i didn't think i wanted to write about anything else at that particular time the city the new orleans and whatever and right and so that was kind of a big like i guess i'm going to be here for a while moment <laughs> and uh and now it's you know i'm married i got two kids my wife's um building a hotel down the street from oh, here. Cool. And, um, from here, I'm trying to picture it's like it because it's this way. It's like an old abandoned school. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, you know, we're here. Um, I want to ask you about post Katrina. There's a thousand ways we can go into it, but I, I just, well, and we'll get into the kind of human element of it, but just from a professional standpoint, uh, you know, you've spent several years on a certain beat and that beat literally disappears. There are no restaurants. Commander's Palace, which is the, arguably flagship restaurant in New Orleans, closes for 13 months. And I read an interview with you, you said something to the effect of no, nobody would want, it would be insufferable that you'd be like, ah, I don't know if the wine list is good enough mm-hmm. or people are dying, mm-hmm. you know, and moving and displaced and, and the neighborhoods are underwater. Was it just a natural reaction? It's like, oh yeah, obviously I'm going to go to the, whatever you want to call it, the disaster beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you transition mentally from this to that's completely not my job anymore and maybe it never will be again? Um, I mean, how do I transition mentally? I mean, I still don't know. You know, yeah. I mean, that, it was jarring. It was, you know, it was, but it, at the time it just seemed like, it, it, you know, you, you woke up in the morning, the city was underwater. What are you going to do? Right. And well, how was your neighborhood? Worked for the news. This, so I've, the, where, where we sit yeah. is I've lived in this house since 2002. Oh, okay, cool. Um, the, there's, we put a second story on it a couple of years ago or yeah. a year and a half ago for the, cause we have kids, but, um, this neighborhood did not flood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came back to the city, I think it was like six days or came back to Louisiana. Like I went, I evacuated Oxford, Mississippi, came back to Louisiana for a few days and then into New Orleans, you know, six or seven days. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know. I wanted to see it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and there were, you know, the only, the only thing to do was to just write stories about what was happening. And, and, and that's what occurred. I mean, I assumed at that time that, that my job would end, you know, and, and that, um, that I would probably write a series of stories about all these great things that were gone forever hmm. and then leave, get fired, whatever. You know what I mean? I, I, I that's what I assumed was going to happen. And I had, I just, you know, you had no control over it. And so I just, you know, you just wake up, do your work, drink, yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? That's what it was yeah. like those yeah. days. Yeah. I mean, and, and, uh, but then it's, you know, the, the beat turned out to be more of a story than I ever would have anticipated, you know, in those early days, because, you know, it wasn't, I did not do restaurant criticism, but it was like, you know, this is a city full of restaurants and restaurant workers, you know, and if those people are going to come back to New Orleans, they're going to need some place to work. And there, you know, all of a sudden the city full of all these small businesses starts from percolating to life or to half life. Yeah. And, um, and so that, you know, I wrote stories about that for, in, you know, a million different 
variations for like three years, you know, and um, just about the city kind of coming back to life, and 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 ultimately, it became clear that the that the restaurants were kind of leading the economic revival in a lot of ways, and 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 leading by example by you know, demonstrating like, look, this can be done. Like, look, we're open. You know, I mean, yeah. not, not only are we open, we got soft shell crabs. You know, I mean, yeah. we, and uh, you know that that'll remain one of the most powerful things I've ever seen as a as a writer and just as a person. You know, like, um, you know, normal people providing this sort of service that that just transcends what their what their service is supposed to be, which is just to you know, just to feed you, you know, and, and the, um, so, you know, that, I I hope there's never a bigger story than that. Oh God. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Uh, I worry. I do worry. You've been, you've you've written about this idea of of restaurateurs and restaurant workers having courage. And I think to a cynic, you'd be like, well, it's courageous that your farm to table squash is delicious or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, it sounds like they, these are the people that rebuilt the city to a large, along with the contractors. Yeah, and the you know, I mean, yeah, everyone sort of, you know, helped yeah. rebuild the city. But they, but they, you know, because they're so public facing, you know, yeah. because the, the city of New Orleans is, is, the, its identity is so bound up in its restaurant culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people were, were watching that. You know, yeah. They, they were looking for that. And, um, to, to whether or not, like, if the restaurants didn't come back, well, then New Orleans would not be what New Orleans was. Mm-hmm. And but the restaurants did come back, you know. And yeah. so you know, but a fucking thing. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I the that. Um, so yeah, that but that was a that was definitely a transformative sort of period. How do you for everyone? A, how do you put out a newspaper with no phones and no electricity? <laughs> like, what did it look like to? I mean, obviously, you're not on the ground in that way. You're contributing, you know, writing, but. The, the paper's infrastructure to somewhat ceases to exist. How, how do, what does the mechanics look like? I mean, in the early days of it, I, you know, I, would, I should emphasize, I would, there was people who stayed through the storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, yeah. I was not one of them. I mean, yeah. I, but the, um, the, uh, what did that look like? There, you know, there was a bunch of people that, that sort of paper, so to speak, like home yeah. base was in Baton Rouge there for a while. And when I got here, um, you know, the people who I work with who are still here were at um, the house of Stephanie Grace, who's a, still a local reporter, or reporter columnist. She, mm-hmm. she works for the Advocate now, and we were like camped out at that her house, sleeping on the floor, wow. where there was generators, and we would, you know, plug into a modem or something and send. In, you know, deadlines were super early. Um, like four in the afternoon because I think we were getting printed in Mobile or somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and it, even though like in, we had a website that like I think served a great purpose in those days, though <coughs> still I mean two thousand five, two thousand six, two thousand seven. I mean that was the the, the paper was still identified by its it was printed product. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and um, you know some days we we take a stack of papers and hand them out in the French Quarter and huh. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, it, in retrospect, we were actually back in our headquarters relatively soon. I believe we were back in October, and and yeah, um, in the whole grand scheme of things, that's like lick, that's pretty quick. You yeah, know? I mean, because it was underwater. Yeah. Um. So. So so publication got back to normal actually pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, the you know those early days was like you know you'd you'd send stories to someone in Baton Rouge and somehow it'd get into the newspaper the next day. You uh, one of the stories. Maybe your signature story from that era was about this restaurant called Mandina's, which uh, you spent the better part of two years embedded with them trying to get the feel for what does it look like when you're trying to get back on your feet. Uh, maybe on a very basic level, I would ask you, uh, what is it like to spend two years on a story? It just, I mean, did, were you doing other stuff on the side or are you just like, I'm going to embed and this is it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was doing lots of stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that was sort of my, like, pet thing you yeah. know and um i was doing a lot of other stuff but the but i'd always when the you know early on like in the first few days that i was back in the city and and doing you know kind of just whatever it was crisis you know riding the back of these military trucks and stuff the, um i had i had thought to myself like i need to find one place 
like iconic New Orleans restaurant that was destroyed by this. And if I can find some people who are going to try to rebuild, I just want to see what that takes, mm-hmm. right? And um, and Mandina's became an obvious choice in part because it what it it was really really badly flood damaged, and it's a and Mandina's to for your listeners' edification is like a you know a business that was, had at that time been open over a hundred years, mm-hmm. started as like a corner grocery store. Um, you know, founded by Sicilian immigrants, like a lot of the old or, um, food businesses in New Orleans. Um, and, uh, and it had been, you know, kind of evolved into a restaurant over the decades and, and in a very patchwork way. So the restaurant had this vibe about it that just seemed like you could not save it. You know, yeah. that, like in my mind, it was like, Man, if you have to gut Mandina's, it's not Mandina's anymore because it was, you know, there was like this old bar room that you walked into and it just had the feeling of the, the, like a lot of old New Orleans homes and stuff. The floors were a little slanted and, and then you kind of have to walk through this weird hallway into kind of another little room with no windows or, you know, it was just, but it just had this amazing vibe about it. And, yeah. you know, this is a, a, a place that serves, um, you know, it's the sort of quintessential <coughs> mashup. New Orleans neighborhood restaurant menu with French Creole dishes like Amandine and, 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 and turtle soup and that kind of stuff. But then also the old red sauce Italian things because this is this yeah, an Italian right. restaurant, you know, and sort of soul food touches because you've had African American chefs there over the years. I mean, it was just this, all, all the seafood, po'boys, it's, you know, it's still a fantastic place. And, but I just, I was, one of the reasons I picked them is I was skeptical. I was like, you know, you guys have them big job yeah. to you and it might not even be worth it. You know I mean? That was like kind of the thing that early on when I was, and, and they were open to me hanging out with them. I mean, and these are, it's a family owned company, Tommy Mandina and his daughter who were, you know, and basically inherited it were incredibly interesting characters, mm-hmm. I mean, they, you know? And, um, so, so I just tried to stay up. They, they were very cool about inviting me to their meetings when they were meeting with architects from the very early going and, and I just kept doing that and kept doing that and kept checking back in with them and kept stopping by the restaurant. And, you know, there would be some, over that long period of time, you know, there might be a month or something where I don't talk to them very yeah. much, but like, you know, memory serves, you know, but Cindy would, if I didn't, she didn't hear from you over time, she'd call and <laughs> say, Hey, you know, this is what's going on. Yeah. I, you know, it, the, uh, and that's, I said, we ran that as a five part series. Um, but, uh, I, you know, that would, those were, <laughs> the paper was thicker then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, and that kind of story is such a change of pace too. Cause I mean, when you were doing the disaster beat, like not, mm-hmm. not, like, not to underscore and under emphasize this, but like you're writing about bodies, you're writing about, yeah. you're, you're like a crime reporter almost yeah. at that point. I mean, was there a, a point at which you're like, this is actually too much for me. I'm a features writer. I can do heavy stuff. I can do light stuff, but I'm just. The devastation is too much. You come back to the city. Yeah, you can live your life. You can sleep on the floor of somebody mm-hmm. else. But other people are just like, they're not going to have a home. They're, they're, their mom died. I mean, I can't. I've never had to do anything quite like that. Certainly not for extended stretches of journalism. And I, and I just, it would be a shock to the system, I would think. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I struggled a lot. I mean, I, I, I suffered from depression a lot during that period. Yeah. That I, I completely. Youngish guy in early 30s. Like that, yeah. I mean, know. I, you know, that. Like that was really hard. I mean, I, and, and, you know, one of the hard, one of the, an aspect of it being hard is that you're, you're, everyone is going through it. You know, it's not like when, when you have this, you know, people have personal crises, you know, worse than anything I've ever experienced in my life, but you know, all the time, but they can put themselves in the company of people who aren't going through that crisis. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and, and draw some comfort and draw some sanity from that and, and, and lean on them. You know, Katrina, there was nowhere to turn. No. Like everyone. And, and in some ways, I think a lot of people would keep a lot of their sort of troubles and feelings bottled up because there was a sense that like, well, so many other people have it worse. Like, who am I to even yeah. complain? And that, you know, that became a very difficult thing to work through, I think. And, um, and I know I struggled with that a lot. I mean, I, I, when I was, um, in 2012, I took a, uh, I left for a year to take a fellowship at the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard. And my, my application, my proposal was to, um, to study 
how other communities historically that had been through disasters dealt with the ensuing um, mental health, public health crisis. Yeah. You know, like that, I was interested to know. I mean, once I'd sort of like, you know, enough years had passed, the... Um, is that like job that was like something that, that I was very, well, I mean, a lot of it was sort of that was available to, you know, to, to look at sort of academic work that I had come across. Yeah, yeah. There was like kind of an Africa, oh, you know, like sure, war torn yeah. stuff. And, yeah. um, and, uh, because it just, I don't know, that just left a mark on me, you know, the struggling mentally and, uh, the, uh, and, you know, in, in, in retrospect, I, I think it's, I think there was a reckless lack of mental health care available for the people here. Right. But I mean, I guess it's one of those things where there was a lack of... There's just a lot going on. Too, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. just a lot going on. Yeah. It's just like, and, but, uh, but it was, uh, you know, people, I think a lot of people struggled, didn't have to struggle as, as mightily as they did. You know, it had there be, had there been sort of more resources and, and just, you know, it's, it, the thing is, it just everything everything felt unthinkable. So mm-hmm. you know, it was impossible to prepare for it. But um, let's go back a little bit before the Katrina mm-hmm. uh, story, and I want to ask you about a story that you wrote about a guy named Gilberto, a waiter. It's a 2002 story, mm-hmm. and um, our mutual friend Benjamin Hockman suggested that I read this mm-hmm. story. Benjamin, it's great. The mm-hmm. story was really great and very interesting. And on its base level, it's a story about a waiter who mm-hmm. gets fired for sexual harassment, which mm-hmm. that happens in every industry, whatever. Mm-hmm. My takeaway from this was the reaction of everybody else. Mm-hmm. That he he worked for Galatoire's, which is mm-hmm. one of the grand dames of New Orleans restaurants. And the thing that I came away with from this story is the idea of whether or not the customer is always right. That's mm-hmm. the, 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 that was my takeaway. And mm-hmm. the, you could read it thirty different ways, but that was my thing. Mm-hmm. That in this city, you've got Clancy's and you've got Commanders and you've got Galatoire's mm-hmm. and you've got these places. And and even more so, fifteen years ago, the same people are going. It's the same lawyer who's been there three times a week who drops a big tip, or whatever. They, they request the same waiter. Mm-hmm. People would come from out of town, town six times a year to see Gilberto to lay a forty percent tip on mm-hmm. him after their big meal. That it was just this is the lifeblood of this restaurant. Is not the owners. Mm-hmm. It's the waiters to some extent, but it's the clients. Mm-hmm. So on a basic level, there's a couple ways I want to go about this. But for starters. Is the customer always right? Is that a thing? Should you model your business that way and do that? Because that's not what happened here. They got rid of him and there were liability issues and what have you. But it cheesed a lot of people off and some people never came back to Galatoire's. Yeah, it's a complicated uh, thing. The I think in restaurants, yes, you you, you want to create the... the um, Illusion that the customer is always right. Yes. I mean, you know, I mean that you you don't want that relationship to be adversarial in any way. So it takes away from what a restaurant is supposed to be. Um, the you know, Galatoire's is is unlike any restaurant I've ever encountered. Hmm. Um, and you know, I wrote that in two thousand and two. <coughs> I arrived here about a year and a half before that, um, and uh, there had been stories. In the late 90s, when a manager had been brought on to Mount to Galatoire's and, and made some changes, you know, I mean, and, and you know, the, the, the family that owned it was making some changes. And every time there was a change, there was a story. Yeah. You know, and, and the story was about how the longtime customers thought every change was the end of the world. Portobello you know, mushrooms. Mean, credit yeah, cards. Yeah. You know, you know normal cards. things. Oh, I mean, going from, going from hand-chipped ice. Yeah. To, ice you stuff. know, like people stopped ordering cocktails. And um, even you know, I remember there's a dish they serve their oysters on brochette, which they, is is bacon wrapped, deep fried oysters served on pieces of toast, toast points, um, with brown butter on it. And amazing, you know, there was even a when they got a different way to toast that bread, some people quit ordering that. You know, so wow. so there's always this. this That's there, very New Orleans. Yeah, right? there's this vibe around yeah. around Galatoire's as being the place that. Uh, w- was sort of the keeper of old New Orleans identity and also <coughs> the place where the fight over, over New Orleans and, 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 and sort of the change in modernity, you know, that, that's where the battle was fought, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, th- and this, th- when they fired this waiter, that, it, 
it reached its greatest expression, this tension, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there's also this class issue of, you have, there are the, the, the people who have been patrons, customers of Galatoire's for, for generations, you know, it's like this whole, my grandfather took me here in the book, you know, now I'm a grandfather, you know, like there's that, are the kind of upper crust of New Orleans and they're not used to, and, and, you know, restaurant owners occupy a different position in the socioeconomic hierarchy of a city. Mm. And I do think that there was a sense of like, look, I, I know you guys own this business and stuff, but like, you know, this is me talking. Yeah. You know, that they're, you know, they're customers that are not used to being told no outside the walls of that restaurant. Right. And, and I think genuinely believe in a very patronizing way, like, look, you, you know, you restaurant manager do not know what you're dealing with here. This is Galatoire's. I know Galatoire's. You do not. Yeah, right. And so there is that interesting tension. Um, and, and I do think that, uh, that this, this, the allegation that caused him to be fired, sexual harassment, this is 2002, was regarded by a lot of these customers as kind of the social equivalent of a portobello mushroom. Yeah, you know, sort of yeah. like, like just kind of a no, nothing sandwich and, you know, this, you know, something that didn't, that, that wasn't supposed to be taken seriously. And, you know, that story was, this was kind of like pre-internet virality. This was, you know, oh, you yeah. know like, oh, I, I do course. think that that, but local, but lots of, you know, Los Angeles Times came and wrote about it after I did, and the USA Today, blah, blah, blah. There was a, a, a journalist I worked with named Chris Rose did, turned the letter writing campaign that these old customers, um, undertook to try to mm-hmm. remedy the situation. He did something called, Galatoire's monologues, which is sort of a riff on the vagina monologues, which was a big thing at the time and where, you know, people did this satiric reading of these letters that people wrote. Yeah. And it was a, you know, it was a smash. It was a sold out play. Basically. These people were quite pompous and quite sure. There was the one lady who said, like, Gilberto's so handsome. Like, how could that be? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, it was just, like, not really getting the point. Yeah, it wasn't. And, and, but I, I, so I have had reason to think back on this story because of of the me too movement that we're in the, yeah. and and the story that I wrote on that I worked on last year having to do with the the John Bash restaurant group and some allegations of sexual harassment there um and when I go back and read the Galatoire story there is an element where I feel like we didn't I didn't in the writing uh foreground the sort of severity of the charge right. as much as I would have had it we written it today. You know, yeah, and, and the um but there are some other there are some other circumstances to take into account there. Like the um the women who who made the allegations didn't you know declined to, to talk about it at all. Yeah. So you know there there wasn't any of that information to put in there as to what happened, right? Like and so there, you know, it's limited in that regard. And, um, but, you know, I, I do think about that and, uh, you know, how, how we really did play that story as a story about sort of the existential dread over New Orleans changing. Mm-hmm. Um, that is sort of part of what makes New Orleans New Orleans. And I do think that that was an excellent example of it, but, um, it was, you know, it was a different era. Like, and, um, and, you know, and also to be fair to Galatoire's, they did, you know, in that instance, do the right thing. Yeah. Someone complained, they fired the person, you know what I mean? Like, that they, they, and, um, so that's kind of interesting, you know, uh, just to recall, but, um, but yeah, that was a, that, that was certainly the biggest story I wrote down in, in my pre-Katrina years. Um, you wrote a piece for the New Yorker in 2015, talking about post-Katrina, it's obvious you're certainly talking about it now, like people, this is not like, oh, I'm 70, I'm gonna forget, no, it'll mm-hmm. be with you the rest of your life. But one of the things you talked about, you just mentioned, is the idea of the class divide. You called it social bifurcation. Mm-hmm. Uh, New Orleans in better shape in 2018 than it was in 2005 or 2002 when it comes to that. Whether restaurants it comes to other. social bifurcation? Social bifurcation. No, no, it's not in better shape. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that it's, well, I, I'd say whether or not it's, you know, 
the data suggests it's in marginally better shape or whatever. That's kind of yeah, above yeah, my yeah. pay grade. But I think that like I don't I don't think there's anyone who can credibly say that uh, there's no work to be done there. Yeah. Or that. Um, well, that's America. Too, yeah, I mean that's America. Or yeah. but or or that that you know there there is. New Orleans has changed economically and socioeconomically since Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do believe that there is a um, a larger population of young, educated professionals here than there were when I moved here. Mm. Um, and I think that that is, I, I, you know, I think that's a good thing for the city. I think it's good that more people want to move here and... And, and start their professional lives here. You yeah. know, like, whereas I, I feel as if when I moved here, certainly people did that, but there was also, you know, this is, these are unscientific observations. They're just <laughs> observations of living here. It did, particularly coming from DC, which is such a, uh, you know, such a haven of just super ambitious young people. 24 year old yeah. working on the hill. Yeah. You see them and everywhere. Like going, yeah. going on 45. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, right, right. And, um, and just that, you know, New Orleans was shockingly different in that regard, where mm-hmm. it was sort of like, in D.C., I was like the least ambitious in my social group, and here it was like, you know, all my friends are journalists, or, you know, or, or, or people who really lived here to be bohemians, to, you know, to get jobs that just paid the bills so that they could live in New Orleans and, and go see music. and Like New York 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah, or, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it was a place you came to to live and experience New Orleans, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's a fabulous thing. Uh, the but it didn't was not a place that was filled with jobs and whatever it's still not filled with jobs but there is a different socioeconomic makeup but I do there is still a big problem with um you know uh socioeconomic divide and I you know I don't know how to fix it <laughs> um but I you know I think most cities do have that issue uh but there are there is a you know people do say that could you know New Orleans or Katrina changed New Orleans for the better I think that that's true in some ways. It's less true in other ways, but it certainly didn't fix that. You yeah. know, like that didn't get fixed. Um, um, one issue, which I don't know if you could fix, but maybe you have a little bit more of a direct read on it, is the idea of a lack of African-American chefs. And you were on a panel uh, not that long ago where you talked about it. Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned Mandina's. And you, you go through the city. There are, when I say African-American, there are African culinary influences everywhere in the city. Mm-hmm. You cannot, any restaurant has it in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the fact that things like gumbo, things like that, you go to Dookie Chase and you go to Commanders, there's a lot of crossover there. You know, mm-hmm. there's a, this should be ubiquitous that you go into any, uh, kitchen and you're going to see a bunch of black chefs because why wouldn't you? Because mm-hmm. what, are we, what kind of food are we talking about? Um, but that's not necessarily the case. So mm-hmm. how do we get from point A to point B in a city that it seems like should be almost more obvious than any other city in America that we should have that? Oh, that's a hard one. I, the, um, you know, one of the many forces (laughs) that, um, that make that dynamics so is that, you you know, the, the, the faces of of chefs that you see. Yeah, the celebrity aspect. Yeah, that, that, you know, do tend to be white, um, in New Orleans. I mean, I, a lot of times those people are owners. They have cat, you know, they, white people tend to be more prosperous and have more access to capital. I mean, you know, that's one of those, that's, that's a factor there. Um, I think it's that the press, you know, we need to be more conscious of not just lazily covering the restaurants that we have before, you know, that we're familiar with and that, um, and whose owners and chefs have been, exposed and are familiar to us and, you know, and that we need to do a better job of that. Um, and I think that restaurant owners need to do a better job of, um, you know, promoting people of color, yeah, people, you know, yeah. in their, in their businesses. I, you know, I think those are good, those would be good starts. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, in the financial community, um, I think needs to be, do a better job of taking, um, bets on people who need the capital, um, who are people of color. I've got uh, one more heavy-ish question. I got mm-hmm. a bunch of fun rapid fire ones. I want to ask you also about the post uh, BP oil spill. That was another one that was affected the region quite deeply. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally, I just remember when it happened thinking, who's getting shrimp now? 
Like, mm-hmm. I, I, there are environmental disasters, there are people's lives that are affected, mm-hmm. but if you just think about, if you've ever been to New Orleans and you've eaten at a restaurant, like, how, again, mm-hmm. how's the restaurant industry going to survive on that? Is it just time heals all wounds and people forgot about it? How do you physically change the the perception of an entire body of water and all of the mm-hmm. wildlife that comes out of it that, that gets eaten by people? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, in the early going, that was the, that was the question, right? I yeah. mean, like the, uh, and, um, and that was a story where I, you know, I, I was taken off restaurant reviews to, for about eight, ten months or something like that, just yeah. to write about this issue. And, um, and what would happen, you know, that, those stories were all just sort of about the ongoing disaster that didn't seem to end because they couldn't plug that hole for yeah, that, right. that leak whatever for forever but also like what what the damage could be <laughs> you know mm. uh, to the culture if if all of a sudden we were a place where people were eating salmon in galatoires you know mm-hmm. um the i do think that you know and for that and during that period i traveled a lot i've always sort of traveled a lot and there definitely was a phenomenon of of the fishing community here and the businesses here losing their you know, their business contacts that people from other places were not going to eat the seafood down here. I do think that that is, that is not something I hear anymore. No. I, I do think that time has, you know, had its way with that particular, uh, the, the, the perception issue there that all of the seafood down here would be tainted and that, that it would be impossible for it not to be tainted. I don't think that that is still there. Although I, I will say, you know, this, the, the, the oil spill happened in 2010. I lived in New England in, for from like August 2012 to August of 2013, yep. and that it's still that perception. You know, one of the New England is amazing seafood. You know, like yes, yes. and and um and so I would eat in a lot of seafood restaurants and stuff. And I, you know, I would bring that topic up sometimes. You know, just like casually at, at an oyster bar or whatever. Like, yeah, you get any golf shrimp or stuff. And you know, I would often hear, "It's like, no, you can't. It's poison shrimp." You know? Yeah, like, you know, you would still hear that. Yeah. Like, and um, but I haven't. You know, I haven't done that test recently. I, and I just don't hear it as being a problem. Although I, you know, I do know businesses here, people in the seafood business, oyster guys, distributors and stuff who, who haven't, you know, and they're telling fully, you know, business has never resumed, never, never returned to normal for them, you know, and, and, the, and that like, you know, the people that they did business with, they stopped doing business with because of that event and, mm. and that has caused, continues to, bum them out, you know, yeah, right. I mean, like, I, so, you know, that was a big, that was a big, that was a big story. That was a big problem. I mean, and, um, and I think that the, from the, I don't, I don't, I, I, for, from the beginning thought that people were safe, you know, that the, that the protections yep. were in place, but I, I still think that there is reporting and science and all that sort of stuff to do as to how the, the, the population of, in the Gulf of Mexico has weathered that particular event. You know, I mean, like, cause you, it, you know, the breeding cycles and all that sort of stuff. It's, you know, the effects of it can still show up, right? And we don't know still if, how that affected that, that, that ecosystem entirely. And, hmm. um, you know, that's something, and we, you know, this report is the picking, you still pay attention to that. Um, um, so this is less of an issue now, it sounds like, based mm-hmm. on what I've read about you, but, um, like your, your face shows up now in places and articles and so forth. But I know back in the day, maybe more so, maybe somewhat now too, secret identities and disguises and all that stuff comes into it. And I assume that you don't typically repeat your disguises and secret identities or whatever. Well, I should say that I've never done disguises, and I have a reason okay. for that. Okay. I have, so the the way that I've always done this, I, I'm dealt, fascinated. The way this. that I've always dealt with that this in New Orleans is that I don't get reservations in my own name, mm-hmm. and even when I know that the restaurant's going to know me when I walk in the door, and um. Often other people make reservations for me. I, you know, I don't call for my own phone when I make them. Yeah. But I eat out so much and particularly I eat out less these days than I did at the sort of height of my reviewing days. Mm-hmm. Um, just partly because of some changes in the business, partly because of some changes in my personal life because I have kids now. Yeah. But you know, I would eat out 10 times a week and, Oof. um, you, if I was to, to actually deploy disguises that worked, you know, that, that, it, you know, it would, I'd spend half my life in makeup. I mean, it, it, it's just completely not, it's just not, it's, it, it would just not be, it's not doable. It wouldn't have been possible. You yeah. know, I, I didn't have enough, there's not enough time to play dress up like that. Yeah. 
And so that's the way I've always dealt with that. Um, it is true that my image has gotten out there recently. Um, you know, in the new sort of digital news era, I have had conversations with my superiors who, who, who have like stopped, you know, demanding that I protect my identity. And, yeah. you know, and there have been suggestions in the past of like, well, you know, let's like just start publishing your picture. And, and we haven't done that. Um, but I have said yes recently to appear on a couple of food programs. And I always, in the years past, I'd always turn those down. Yeah, of course. Um, and in the wake of, in October this last year, when I mentioned we published this story, this long investigation about allegations of sexual harassment at a local restaurant company, um, you know, I spent months talking to these women about their stories and, 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 and nine of them put their names in the story and did so, you know, a lot of these people feared the, for their safety yeah, in doing so. And, and it just seemed that when, when news organizations in the wake of that asked me to sort of, you know, the local news station asked me to come on the air that like declining to talk about this story after having had these long and in some instances pretty tense conversations with women about about them, you know, revealing their identity, it would have been ridiculous for me to hide yeah. behind this, uh, yeah, no, but I can't be on TV, you know, in a market where a lot of people don't know what I look like anyway. And so that, that's kind of what that was about. And, um, but I don't intend to, you know, make my image a part of my, um, professional identity. It's, I'm just not interested in that. Hmm. Um, you talk about eating out 10 times a week, often. That very, includes lunches, of course. Yeah, very, <laughs> right. Very rich food, po' boys, some kind of fish drenched in butter, some kind of bacon with the oysters in the butt. And, uh, you know, we, I feel like our bodies can only take so much. I've been here a couple of days. I'm already like, oh, okay, I, I gotta, I gotta hit the gym. I gotta do this. I gotta do that. I mean... I'm sure you get asked all the time, but just on a basic level, are you happy to not be doing it? Aside from the fact you have kids, mm -hmm. to be able to pull back, you know, we're, we're in our 40s now. I feel like that this is this is not something that could be sustainable to just keep doing this over and over. It's delicious, <laughs> but did you reach a certain point where you're like, I don't know if I can. It might actually be too much for my body. I don't, I don't know how many Stairmasters I could do at this point. Um... Well, first of all, it's true that there's a lot of rich food in here yeah. in, in New Orleans, but I don't experience it day to day like a tourist does. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, and it is, while the food is rich, like, you know, the demands of my job call for me to find places and report about places of all different types. And sure. so you can kind of pace out your, you know, your dining diet to include, you know, sushi and salad. Salad, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's a possible thing. Yeah. Um, I'm a pretty big person, you know, yeah. there's like, I'm tall and long and, 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 and so there's places for the food to hide. Um, <laughs> but you know, I've been, I got my first job as a restaurant writer when I was 25 and I'm 47 now and I don't even, and you know, in that job in DC, I ate out six, eight times a week and, yeah. and, and, um, I don't know any other way to be, uh, you know, I mean, 22 years, a long time and, and the, you know, that's to to, to live sort of out in restaurants and, um, and I like it, you know, I, I like it and it does get tiring, but I'm used to that being, you know, I'm used to being tired by it. Like, and I, you know, these days I eat out, I think I'd say five, six meals a week. Mm -hmm. Um, and that'll be two, three lunches. Um, and that just feels totally manageable to me. I mean, given the way I've lived my life. That yeah. Just, that just seems like how everyone ought to be. I mean, I don't, you know, like, so that's not taxing. I mean, I, and I don't, and I like the, I like having an excuse to be in, to be out. I mean, one, one thing I think people don't always, when they hear about my work or just the idea of being a restaurant and credit critic in general, is it being this great perk, which it is, but you know, dining in a restaurant, that's like you're reporting. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's what you do to report. It's, it, and so you got to go out, you know, like that's where things happen and where you see what's happening in the city and what's happening in 
the life of the restaurant scene. And, and, um, so it's, you know, it's very necessary to eat out in restaurants and, um, and I, I should add that the, the newspaper pays for all those meals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and two, just following the career path from a kid who was a Drake and then wasn't a Drake and trying to figure out your way and, and working in ad sales and all that too. When, uh, you ended up taking the Neiman gig and the Picayune briefly laid you off as a result of that, well, several things, one being the newspaper industry having trouble, and people like Anthony Bourdain being quoted in there saying, oh, yeah, Brett, what are you doing, you stupid idiot? Well, how could you lay this guy off? Uh, you know, establishing yourself as one of the preeminent critics in the country, and that, um, you know, when the Times position came up, reportedly you were up for that, you're in a place where you can probably write your ticket to a certain extent, more so now, I would think, than you've been in the past. You've been in New Orleans 17 years, you've got your kids, you've got this lovely home, you've got all that. Is there a dream job out there that would make you say, oh, you know what? Yeah, it's, it's run its course, I'm going to go, I'm, 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 I'm out. Or you're like, no, this, this is it, I'm here until I retire. Because <laughs> you can, I mean, you've, you've reached that point, well, which is I a great position to be in. You're, you're saying flattering things, <clears throat> I'm just going to let the, um, You know, I've always been an ambitious person, yeah. and, and but one of the things about uh, <coughs> journalism that I've always really liked... Um, hey, Natalie, come on in. <laughs> My wife is getting home. <laughs> the, is that... Um, you know, that people can do great journalism anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess I've, I've always... Since I came out of the newspapers, I was never... Um, I, I just, this has become clear to me because I have a lot of journalist friends and stuff that, and particularly after getting to New Orleans, I never really subscribed to this idea that, um, you know, that, that a journalist's life needs to be, an ambitious journalist's life, life needs to be one, jumping from one job yeah. to another job at a larger circulation, whatever her paper. And, 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 or news outlet, whatever it is. That's like never has been something that I totally bought into, you know, which isn't to say I haven't been interested in other jobs. I mean, there's some really great places to work out there, but, um, I just, I really like living in New Orleans. I really believe in local journalism. I think, you know, I do write for other publications. Yep. Like the Times and, and you mentioned some other stuff. Yeah. That, and and it, it's different, you know, it's, it's different writing when you're writing for about New Orleans or anywhere for a national audience than if you're writing for a local audience. I really, really like writing for a local audience. Mm. And, um, I like the lifestyle of, living in a place that I find fascinating and being able to write about that place to other people who, you know, for other people who live in that place. And that's like not something that is, you know, duplicable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, I for, so for the time being, I'm, you know, I really, I like what I do. I like living here. I, I do, I am allowed to write for some other outlets and I get to write about things, not about food. And, and that's a pretty satisfying situation for me. Um, and, you know, I, I only really got 40 hours a week in me right now because we got a one year old and a three year old. So I don't, you know, I don't think there is a dream job yeah. out there anymore. The thing is also, too, is that the opportunities in journalism have utterly changed. Yes. You know, I mean, they're not, and they're changing all the time. And so, you know, I'm trying, I'm working when I'm not doing picking stuff. I work on other different projects, and I'm, I'm interested in, in documentary. I'm interested in radio. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in, in and um, I'm going to continue to explore those things and see what happens. But I don't really have a great desire to stop writing about New Orleans and New Orleans food for the time speaking. <laughs> you know, I, I still really like it. And, uh, and it doesn't feel, you know, when you're a working journalist, it's not, you know, there's some stories, obviously, that you care more about than others. I mean, I, but, um, I don't feel like I'm, uh, I don't know, stuck in a rut. Yeah. You know? So that, and that's like, I'm just, my main fear is boredom and I'm not bored. That's good. New Orleans is a hard place to get bored. That's true. Um, and, but we'll see, you know, we'll see. 
So one last question, which I do at the end of every podcast, is I always ask the guests for a life tip, a nugget of wisdom, something that they, it's very Brett. I meet you in a bar. I know that you go to a dinner with three other guys named Brett, two of whom I've also <laughs> met, uh, which is the most delightful thing in the world. I'm seeing one Brett of those Bretts. Bretts that I've seen one of those Bretts tonight, too. So this is fantastic. Um, yeah, but I came over to, I eavesdropped on the Brett dinner. I got a sense of your true self and it could be something super serious and motivates you every day and I got to do this or it could be something totally silly. And the example of the silly that I always use is I have a friend named Trey Kirby. Trey Kirby does a uh, basketball for NBA TV. He's a TV mm -hmm. guy. And he says, as soon as you get to the airport, your vacation has begun. So go ahead and eat 42 Cinnabons because what's the difference? Your vacation mm -hmm. has begun. I really like that. I like that idea a lot. So it could be something totally as a laugh, or it could be something that's like, yeah, you know, I experienced this personal tragedy. Whatever you want, it's a mm -hmm. very, it's the quintessential Brett Anderson thing. Oh gosh, I don't, I don't feel like I'm. When you say quintessential Brett Anderson, I don't feel like, you know, when on Brett's night out, it's not like maybe not on Brett's night out. Or to be in general, like, like, I yeah. feel like I'm giving, you know, sort of sage advice to people. Um, but I'd say that, you know, like an a, an ethic and that I. Think I'm going to try to impress upon my kids as they, you know, start to become more vocal humans. Um, is I think that it's important for people to not take too much stock in what others expect of them, mm. and to make to set their own standards for themselves and and set them high. That's you know? good. Like I, which isn't to say that I feel like I'm some great example of this, you know, like yeah, yeah. some great noble example of this, but I think that's what you should, uh, I think that's, I just think people should try to do that, you know, and that doesn't, you know, you can do, you can live that ethic without, you know, changing your life, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you can do that doing whatever it is you do professionally and doing whatever and just continuing on living your personal life and just, you know, there's, we talked about David Carr a little bit a while ago and he was a pretty important person in my life. You know, he hired me when I was 21 for my first job. We stayed to be really good friends and he was in my wedding and, you know, he was one of my closest friends and, but he was also a professional mentor and it became clear after he passed that he was this to a lot of people. I didn't really, oh yeah, I didn't even really realize that. Right. But, and the fellowship um, in his name that he carries on generations yeah, later. It's yeah, amazing. You know, I mean, he, you know, a lot of people <clears> looked up to David and, and, um, and I, you know, I worked with him. He, he was my boss longer than he, any, anyone else's boss, you know, hmm. like the, cause I worked with him two papers. No one else did that. Yeah. And, um, and I just say that, that he left a mark on me. And I remember when he passed away, which is going on three years, he passed away during, um, the night of the Muses Parade, which is a week from this Thursday. Yeah. I, you know, so I always remember that. It's a big parade. And, um, it's a Mardi Gras parade. And, um, There's like kind of two things I remember thinking that he taught me. One was, don't be lame. <laughs> you know, like, the, which is, I, I, it's just harder than it sounds. Yeah. You Cause know? we all have inner lame. Yeah, don't be lame. Don't, you know, yeah. don't, don't be the person who never reaches for their wallet when the big bill yeah. comes. You know what I mean? Like th that kind of small stuff. Yeah. But also, you know, own up to your mistakes. Just like, don't, yeah. you know, don't be lame. Like, don't be lame. I mean, his, you know, his book, was, uh, his m memoir was about, you know, I think, feel like an example of real trying to account for past lameness. You know, I mean, it's a memoir about him being a bad guy in a lot of ways. Right. And, and sort of what he learned from that. But also, you know, if you can, the second thing I think is if you can, if you think something nice about that, someone tell him. <laughs> he was super good with compliments that were heartfelt, you know, like in, that's just something people ought to be able to do. I mean, I don't, I'm not good at that. We're know? not good at accepting them or giving them. Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't know what happened. That, but I think people ought to do that. You know, like if someone does something that you admire, don't keep it to yourself. <laughs> you know, there's no, and, uh, I don't know. I think I just said a bunch of different things, but that's my answer. <laughs> well, let, let me, let me try then. Uh, I admire your work and this has been a real pleasure. Well, How about thank that? You. The pleasure was mine. Um, thank you so much for taking an interest and for being here in New Orleans. I love it. Thank you. Thank you.